You're listening to the Psychedelic Invest Podcast, where we speak with founders, CEOs, investors, advisors, experts, and thought leaders in the brave new world of psychedelics and entheogenic medicines. Brought to you by Psychedelic Invest. Bringing you unparalleled psychedelic investing data and analysis. Psychedelic Invest is the industry's leading resource for those looking to invest in the burgeoning psychedelic industry. For more information and to access all of the podcast episodes, check out our website at psychedelicinvest.com slash podcast. And now, here's the host of the Psychedelic Invest podcast, Bruce Eckfeld. Welcome, everyone. This is the Psychedelic Invest Podcast. I'm Bruce Eckfeld. I'm your host. Our guests today are Adriana Kurtzer and Hadas Alterman. They are co-founders of the Plant Medicine Law Group. We're going to talk to them about the world of psychedelics. We're going to talk to them about the world of law, really kind of understanding where are we in psychedelics from a a legal point of view, from a regulatory point of view, a lot of moving pieces, a lot of kind of elements in the psychedelic space that we're going to kind of sort through, give some insight around, hopefully give people an understanding of really where are we and and potentially where are we going and and why the industry is the way it is right now. So with all that, Adriana, Haras, welcome to the program. Thanks, Bruce. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having us. So why, why don't we start start with just a little bit of background on, on both yourselves and kind of the Plantless and Law Group, how you got into the space, like why focus on this area of law, and then we can kind of get into where are we with psychedelics from kind of regulatory legal point of view and go from there. So I'll let you decide who wants to kind of do the background, but let's give a little background to the group. Sure. I can get started and then I'll give Adriana the chance to, to talk about the bigger picture of what our firm's been up to lately. I personally have been interested in the expansion of my mental and emotional horizons. Um, The interior universe is what Sasha Shulgin, who is a famous chemist, refers to it in in his introduction to his book, PCAL, which I would really recommend to anyone interested in psychedelics. And I've also always felt really sympathetic to the plight of the underdog. And I think that Right now, we're coming up on a time in the world where there's so much turmoil, there's so much pain, and I think, you know, very, very specifically something I think a lot about is the skills we are going to need, the skills the next generation are going to need to cope with the effects of the just technology is evolving much more rapidly than our human minds can can keep pace with, and that's going to cause problems and already is. And climate change is, you know, it's unstoppable at this point. We're going to lose coral reef. The ice caps are melting and we're going to need serious emotional resilience, tools, skills, support in order to be able to handle all of the challenges that are coming our way. So we are at a very interesting point in human history where our awareness of what's wrong is on high, but our ability to explore our own coping mechanisms and our emotional resiliency and endurance to face problems within and without ourselves is really, really rising. And so what we wanted to do with Plant Medicine Law Group was to create a law firm that would be able to support companies, practitioners, nonprofits, organizations in the space that had the same mission as we do, which is to give people good access to these to these tools, to these drugs, and to think critically about what is the best type of infrastructure that could support the rollout of this new wave in, in mental health and, and spiritual expansion. And those are the companies we work with, and we're, we feel really proud and lucky to, to be 
of service to this work. Yeah. Adriana, why don't you give us a little sense of kind of practically who you've been working with uh, last couple of years, like how played out in terms of actual clients and the work that you're doing with them? Yep, sure. So um, I'm Adriana Kurtzer, and I was uh, born in Brazil and then have lived my adult life in the United States. And as a little bit of background about how I approach our work for our clients is, is really a fascination with the gray area that exists between sociology, business, and culture. I started my career as a capital markets lawyer at Simpson Thatcher, became a design curator for many years, ended up working for the Obama administration at the National Endowment for the Arts. But if you kind of throw all those titles you know, to the side, what really kind of surfaces is a, a real desire to add order to chaos in situations where things are very complicated and new and there's a lot of movement. And psychedelics fell on my radar as a cultural reverberation uh, back in 2016 and became a, let's say, legal and professional focus upon meeting Hadass. And it was really Hadass who brought all of these different observations that I had made together when she said, you know, one day over coffee, I'm thinking of starting a psychedelics law firm. And it just was the clearest moment in my mind. And I just blurted out, I was like, you have to do that with me. <laughs> um, and so it was, it's funny because it kind of, rec you know, coincided with me turning 40 and just kind of caring less about what my aunties in Brazil thought about yeah, me and exactly. caring less <laughs> about other people's definitions of success. And quite honestly, just saying, you know what? I've been tracking weird shit forever. Yep. I'm finally going to put my full kind of professional and personal and public, you know, existence just kind of let my freak flag fly and really tell people what I'm thinking yeah. about. So the way that it really shakes out, you know, day to day is that we day to day service what we call ecosystem building companies. So yes, we have some biotech clients, but by and large, most of our clients are engaging in legal activities that are building this psychedelic ecosystem that you will need in order to have a medical or spiritual or ceremonial psychedelic future. So everything from working with mushroom substrate manufacturers to um, psychedelic therapy companies that have proprietary mm -hmm. technology, virtual reality platforms, scientific research companies, social network platforms that are focused on psychedelic content, many psychedelic practitioners and, and harm reductionists. And so the list kind of goes on and we're happy to talk a little bit more about, you know, what this ecosystem looks like now and should look like in the future. Yeah. So before we kind of dive into that, let's kind of understand, well, let's talk a little bit because you, you have some background in cannabis. I'm kind of curious on how this interplay or how you've kind of approached cannabis market versus a psychedelic market. How has this been similar? How has this been different? That is a huge question. I would say that essentially the two markets are, I mean, they are completely different in nearly every way, except for a few interesting pieces that Adriana can explain because I think they are more theoretical and cultural. And she's very keyed into those things, as you can tell. But from an investment perspective, we're talking about two different universes. From a policy perspective, we're talking about two different universes. And I think also, importantly, from a restitution and justice perspective, we're talking about two very different issues. I think that a big part, you know, a, a 
a really important part of how the cannabis industry was supposed to play out. And when I say supposed to, I don't just mean, you know, that's my belief of how things should happen. This is actually when you go back and look at legislation and regulation, part of what's written in these state laws and regs is some sort of equity provision that would essentially be a would serve as some kind of restitution to communities that have been disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs that hasn't happened in a very sufficient way, I would say. Um, but with cannabis, there is this legacy of communities, you know, poor rural communities and definitely urban communities of color being really decimated by these policies. And so now that this is an industry and legal and something that's very highly profitable, the idea was supposed to be that those communities would be able to be, you know, given their rightful place at the table. With psychedelics, you don't see that as much because although the, you know, we'll talk about this later, the war on drugs really did stop progress for the most part in researching and, and applying these drugs. There wasn't like, we didn't see the same mass incarceration. We didn't see the same targeting of people of color. So I think that, you know, I, I'll turn it over to Adriana to address how they are similar. Yeah. So I think that the the similarity is that, hmm, here we go. <laughs> I think... Let's zoom out. Humans have consistently been looking for altered states of consciousness. And so there's there's a continuum, you know, in many different directions of, you know, alcohol, meditation, exercise, sex, drugs. So I think that, you know, these substances, whether you call them plant medicines or drugs, humans have, for as long as we know, been looking for ways to alter their perceptions for a whole host of different reasons. I do think that where things start getting tricky and where we also treat them differently is that the the impact that these different substances have on your soul and also your ability to consent and also your ability to protect yourself is just different. And so yeah. that is where we often draw a line within the law firm is to say, you know, cannabis has a certain effect. Yes, you can get really, really stoned, but there's still a certain degree of consciousness and ability to kind of navigate the next steps. And with psychedelics, that isn't the case usually. And so when we work with clients on crafting waivers and, and you know, protocols for retreats and legal destinations, we really treat it very differently than if you were doing a cannabis tasting dinner. And we take that, that nuance very, very seriously. However, let's flip that around. A lot of people in the psychedelic community ignore cannabis. And one of the things that we often do, because we are a, a law firm that straddles, you know, both spaces, is we remind them, you know, when they're anxious and chomping at the bit to do, for example, a psilocybin retreat, we often are in the position to remind them that certain types of cannabis in certain dosages in certain states can actually be psychedelic and that that option is legal in, you know, X, Y, and Z states. So there's a real, it's, it's really great that we make life harder for ourselves by having to follow two industries, but it means that we can often remind the psychedelic industry not to ignore cannabis and to just be hyper aware that when dealing with psychedelic clients, the 
the question of consent, the question of safety, the question of protocol, and quite honestly, the, the role of a therapist or a guide or a shaman is just is just different and important. Yeah. Yeah. And so let's talk about when we refer to psychedelics, what do we mean? Because I think unlike cannabis, which is a, a pretty clear, you know, things derived from the cannabis plant, psychedelics is a little bit of a mashup. How do you kind of parse kind of the term psychedelics into these these different areas and, and why and how are they similar or different? Sure, sure. So I'll, I'll answer that question and, and then you can, if there's something you want yeah. me to dig deeper on, let me know. If I go super deep into every part of this, we'll, you know, never make it out alive. Um, but basically, so I'll start here. The term psychedelic was coined by a British psychiatrist named Humphrey Osmond. Um, and he was writing a letter to Aldous Huxley, who wrote Brave New World. And he used this phrase. He said, to fathom hell or sooner angelic, just take a pinch of psychedelic. And the word psychedelic is a combination of psyche, which is mind, and delos, which is manifesting. So it's mind manifesting or revealing and and that's what it is you know psychedelics are substances that can show you deeper insight into who you are both the good and the challenging and um, the classic psychedelics or hallucinogens as they used to be called more frequently are mm -hmm. lsd psilocybin which is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms dmt which is the active ingredient in ayahuasca mescaline just peyote and then you have what we would call antactogens or empathogens like mdma and then you have ketamine which is a dissociative anesthetic and and then many many more and then i'll just briefly say because i think this is really important for context all psychedelics are federally illegal schedule one drugs so the classic psychedelics LSD, psilocybin, DMT, and mescaline, those are all Schedule 1 and have mm -hmm. been there since 1970. And that means that the DEA considers them to have no medical value and a high likelihood, high potential for abuse. MDMA was added to Schedule 1 in 1985. Why it wasn't there before and how it got there is a really fascinating story we can get into if you want. And then the exception to this rule is ketamine, which is yep. Schedule 3. And it can, you know, it's used off-label for depression and as an FDA-approved drug called Spravato. That's a it's a J and J drug actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so let, let's um, I guess from a, a regulatory point of view, what does that mean? Like, so if something's a Schedule One, what can you do with it and not do with it at this point? So if something is a Schedule One, you cannot. I mean, there is simply no. Uh, there's no way to use it in commerce. Uh, you can't buy it, you can't sell it, you can't create it, you can't manufacture it unless you have an exemption from the DEA um, mm -hmm. or, you know, you're doing a clinical trial or some sort of government sanctioned research, which is happening right now. Yeah. Or you can operate in a quasi-legal zone. And so this is a, you know, this is a big cannabis parallel, obviously, yeah. um, where something is illegal at the federal level, like psilocybin, but mm -hmm. it's been legalized at the state level. So that's what we're seeing in Oregon, which is the prime and currently the only example, although that's going to change, of a situation where the state has actually voters did a initiated a ballot referendum in the 2020 election, which passed you know, something like 75% support. And what it's done, what it's doing is it's creating a a model that we can kind of think of as a hybrid between medical cannabis and adult use cannabis. So it's not exactly, 
actually, let's say it this way, a medical model generally, not akin to cannabis, more like more like with ketamine, where you go and you get a prescription, you're treated for something, and, and a, a recreational model where you don't actually need a prescription, you don't actually need to have some sort of mental illness or diagnosis to be given a prescription. Basically, it's going to be a pretty simple process where you have licensed facilitators, you have licensed centers, and you have licensed cultivators. The cultivators grow the mushrooms, they give them to the centers, the centers hire the facilitators, the facilitators guide participants through psychedelic journeys. It's not therapy because they're not therapists. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's not really a medical model, but it's not really adult use because you're not going to be able to buy a bag of mushrooms and take them into the forest and, you know, just do whatever you want. Although I do think we'll get there eventually. Got it. And and one of the things that um, I wanted to add to this kind of conversation about legal and illegal is that the terms are complicated enough, right? Like what does decriminalization mean? What does legalization, right? And what we've noticed at the law firm, given, you know, who contacts us is that all of the media attention being paid to psychedelics, plus a certain normalization of the gray market on platforms like Instagram, plus the quite honestly difficulty for lay people to understand the difference between decriminalization and legalization and how that even touches commerce. What we see day to day is a real confusion among people about what's legal and what's not. Because in the same breath that you see an Instagram ad about microdosing, you know, you see an article on The Economist about, you know, the promise of psychedelic therapy. It's generating an incredible amount of confusion in the market. And I'm curious to see how that's going to continue unfolding. But uh, but we at the law firm have to draw a very, very bright and firm line that we do not, you know, aid and abet in any gray or illicit activities. Um, but it just always surprises us how much confusion exists currently because of all of the hype and the capital markets activity and so on and so forth. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, the, yes, there's a lot of hype and there's a lot of these kind of reports or, you know, coverage that's coming out around changes in, in you know, state law around some of these things. Um, so it sounds like, you know, similar to cannabis, there's this kind of gray area of where it's it's still federally legal and still you're, you're still kind of exposed on the federal side. But for a state like Oregon who's legalized it, that they're, while it's not, you know, I can walk into a, a effectively a dispensary. I can, you know, produce my own and, and do whatever I want with it. It's still kind of within some kind of container. Like these folks for the facilities that are providing these psychedelic experiences, like what is their risk? What is the legal basis they're operating under? And then what's the risk from a federal point of view? That's a great question. So one of the things that distinguishes the quasi-legal zone of psychedelics right now, just in Oregon, from a similar situation a few years ago, cannabis, Mm -hmm. um, is that we don't have a coal memo. You know, like there have not, we don't have anything saying what type of jurisdiction the DEA may or may not assert in these types of situations. And, you know, what we do have is the understanding that what happened, well, let me take a step back. So we don't have that certainty. People are taking on 
an immense amount of risk by participating in this industry, you know, at the underground level, certainly. But also, you know, I think once the Oregon program really hits the ground running, which it will, I think in 2023, we're going to be seeing these businesses fully operational. It's not just the risk from the federal government that's going to be, you know, something that we may or may not need to have to keep an eye out for. I mean, of course, there's going to be the usual stuff like banking is going to be difficult until this is federally legal, regardless of the posture the DEA takes, um, yeah. things like that. But there's also a lot of other wrinkles to consider when you think about the fact that, sure, these facilitators in Oregon don't need to be psychologists, they don't need to be psychiatrists, but it's helpful if they are, and a lot of people who have dedicated their careers to mental health are excited about this work. They see the potential, they see the efficacy, they, they understand that this is an important thing to be able to give to their, their patients, yep. um, and they want to engage in the work. What we are not sure about is how are medical licensing boards going yeah, to exactly. view this? How <laughs> like, exactly? I could, I could be really into it, but if it risks my license, I, it's going to push me away. Right, exactly. And it's the same question for behavioral health boards. There's also a huge wrinkle with insurance, right? So if you as a practitioner cannot get malpractice insurance or any other kind mm, of insurance yeah, to, yeah. to cover you, then what are you going to do? And that's also going to make it more difficult for participants if they can't get insurance to cover the session. So there's a lot of these little wrinkles that don't hinge so much on, I mean, they do ultimately hinge on legality, but they're not so much, you know, are we going to be criminally prosecuted? It's more of, are we going to be able to do this in like a safe and practicable way? Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, one of the things that we are considering heavily as a firm with our clients, and then also as people who are involved in just the general building of the infrastructure of this industry is... The market will figure out how to deal with insurance. The market will figure out how to deal with licensure. All of those things are going to happen because that is what the market does. Yeah. It, it yeah. fills space. It fills gaps. And there's something great about that. But the issue here with psychedelics is that if we default to allowing the market to do what it does, then what we are essentially doing is ensuring that the way that this industry is rolled out is parallel to the way, you know, big pharma has been rolled out and cannabis has been rolled out and everything that's come before. And with this, I think that we don't want that for two reasons. The first reason is that that hasn't been an equitable way of doing things. It hasn't been a good way to distribute wealth across different communities. Um, and it doesn't always yield the best results for that reason. The second piece is at the end of the day, we're not dealing with widgets, right? Like we're dealing with human consciousness, which is yeah. the most fragile, precious, complex thing that I, you know, I can imagine. And so do we really want to let business as usual, um, single bottom line thinking dictate and trickle down onto decisions that implicate human consciousness, especially when a lot of the patients and participants are already struggling with their mental health. And yeah. the obvious answer is no, we have to do and be and think bigger and better. One of the things that always fascinates me is how we as a law firm obviously are you know, limited to only doing legal work and assisting with legal yeah. work. But you can't be in the cannabis or psychedelic space without having reverence for the people that came before you and also an understanding of 
the wisdom that comes from the underground. Mm-hmm. Um, and in cannabis, you know, we know that because we know the cultivators that were underground had great wisdom in, in raising the plants. In psychedelics, we know that even though the patent office might not know about the repository of existing known compounds, people in the underground were still researching and recording their findings, and psychedelic guides were, you know, perfecting their craft underground. And and now clinical trials that are federally you know, legal rely on this knowledge to carry out their trials. So just to kind of name that all of these kind of increasingly legal industries very much exist as a result of the experimentation and the risk that was taken underground. So that's a really important thing, I think, for us to to name. Where things get complicated, kind of following up from that, is, you know, this question of once you start drafting regulations, right, who can sit in the room with someone? Who can lead a retreat? What I worry about is the kind of the neo-shamans, the the people that, you know, wear the right hat and the feathers around their necks and therefore are, you know, are dealing with these substances and don't have training on mm-hmm. transference and boundaries and consent. And so one of my personal worries and also something that we pay attention to in how we talk to clients is, yes, to navigate this this tension that exists between kind of who has a title, who has the right letters behind their names, the knowledge that's in the underground, and then kind of where is that all kind of end up in the future? I don't have the answer. We don't act as if we have an answer, but we just really make it our business to stay hyper aware of trends, where the knowledge is, and also where best practices can be crafted. So a lot of our clients don't come to us for black and white answers. They really are often paying us to craft best practices with them for a situation that was once 100% underground and without waivers kind of thing. Yeah. And and what are the, I mean, I, I agree, like it's a little unclear on exactly how this is going to all play out because we're, we're dealing with, you know, the legal structure, we're dealing with the therapeutic models, we're dealing with insurance, you know, medical systems, right? There's, there's a lot of players involved in this that need to figure out how they're all going to integrate or work together to, to ultimately create, you know, how psychedelics are going to be, you know, operated, distributed, implemented, you know, applied. What are some of the proving grounds right now or the things going on in the world that you feel are really going to be decisive or influential in, ter- in terms of how that's playing out. You mentioned, you know, Oregon, what's going on there. What else do you see as being, you know, policy issues or, you know, areas that are hot with activity that are going to be influential? Sure. So there's a couple of things. One, I would say MDMA getting through, getting FDA approval in 2023, which is when it's projected to happen, is going to be enormous because it's going to be the first true psychedelic. If we're categorizing ketamine as a dissociative, which it is, it's going to be the first true psychedelic to uh, to be put out to market and to be commercialized. And I think that that's going to be really exciting. I think it's going to be really 
deeply chaotic because we're not ready from an infrastructure perspective. We're not ready from a human capital perspective, which is something Adriana thinks a lot about. But it's going to be an absolute watershed moment. And I think it's going to be very legitimizing for the movement and for the medicine and for all of the people involved. And then, you know, there's a lot of state legislation in the works. Um, and it, I think a lot of it's going to fail, which isn't great, but it is an opportunity to educate people who would not otherwise know about psychedelics and psychedelic-assisted therapy. There are There's a promising bill in New York. There is a reasonably promising bill in Washington. There's Virginia, Florida, Michigan, Colorado, Maine. There's so much going on. I would say right now, the most exciting thing is Oregon because it's already happening. We're just rolling it out. I think, you know, what's happening in, in Colorado, what, what they've what they've introduced is essentially a decriminalization measure. So it's it's not it's not making it legal. It's just making consumption and possession not a crime. But there's not going to be a numerical limit on how much one can possess. And that's going to be an interesting thing. And I think that there's enough. Their coalition hopefully will be strong enough to, to create some success there. Um, another interesting thing that's happening is a group called the Psychedelic Medicine Coalition, which is based out of D.C., they are lobbying at the federal level to ask the NIH to give, I think, $100 million to psychedelic research, which has only been done once before in a very limited capacity. I think um, something really interesting to note about psychedelic research is that because it's all Schedule One, um, the federal government doesn't fund it. So all of the research, all of it, except for this one NIH grant that's escaping me at the moment— all of it has been privately funded, privately solicited donations, which is, you know, in order for the industry to start getting the credibility and the rigor that it needs in, in order to continue growing and developing and meet all of the goals that exist, we're going to need much more serious funding. And that's only going to come from the government. So yeah. I actually think that's something that not a lot of people are talking about that's going to be a huge deal. Yeah, it's been interesting to sort of see kind of how the, the commercial side and the government side and pharmaceutical in general kind of has been playing into this. So what uh, what else? Any any particular? Yeah, I have something yeah. that just occurred to me. So from yeah. a, a more philosophical, cultural, but also legal perspective, I'd beg the question kind of in this way, which is if we if we agree that psychedelics are something that, you know, touches your soul, what are other things or touches your well-being as a human, touches your soul and touches your well-being, what are other areas of people's lives or economy that have been, how have they been treated by American culture? So I think it's always interesting to me that I'm an immigrant, Hadass is the child of immigrants. We kind of see the insider-outsider perspective. And the United States is a puritanical culture. We sometimes forget that. So mind-altering substances are kind of from the get-go, not something comfortable for a puritanical setting. And so how has the United States dealt with regulating religious cults or supplements or yeah. MLMs? And, and, and I'm going pretty far out there because I think that we have a really strange track record of dealing with what do we regulate? What do we not regulate? How do we regulate it? And so, for example, no regulation of MLMs, 
hyper regulation of, you know, of birth control and abortion, no regulation practically of the supplements industry, but, you know, hyper regulation in the, in, in the prohibition era of alcohol. So I know this sounds a little crazy as like a kind of quick podcast soundbite, but I just had a very in-depth conversation with this about someone at Harvard in the, uh, the school of public policy, where she was asking me, you know, how do I think the marketing of supplements of, 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 of psychedelics, like, how do I think that's going to be regulated? And I I said, well, hold on, we have to zoom out and look at what are other areas of our culture that have or have not been regulated, even if they have deep impact in people's souls and people's lives, or people's financial well being or, you know, what whatever it is. So I think there's a really complicated, bigger question here to be asked, which is what is, you know, American society's track record of dealing with these really, really, really complex personal and social considerations. Yeah, yeah. Good questions for future episodes. <laughs> we'll, have to, we'll have to schedule some more so we can get into some of these. But that was great. I think we've got a good understanding of kind of where are we now and, and what do we know and, and more importantly, what do we not know and, and what are big open issues. I appreciate the time. If people want to find out more about you two, about the Plant Medicine Law Group, what's the best way to get that information? Yeah, we are plantmedicinelaw.com. You can email us at hadas at plantmedicinelaw.com or Adriana with one N at plantmedicinelaw. And then we are on Twitter as law underscore plant and Instagram as well. Great. I'll make sure that all that information is in the show notes. People can get that. Adriana Hadas, thank you so much for taking the time today. It's been a pleasure. Thank Thank you, Bruce. Thank you for having us. Thank you for listening to the Psychedelic Invest Podcast. If you liked this episode, please be sure to leave a five-star rating and leave us a review. You can find more episodes on all the major podcasting platforms and our website at psychedelicinvest.com slash podcast. <laughs>